And just when you think you've got a handle on where this book is going, Bulgakov just chucks another left turn at you. So, it is back to Mikhail Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita, but now we are in part two, and once again, we have a radically different story with a radically different cast of characters. But, strangely enough, this is probably as consistent as the Bulgakov's storytelling goes. Um, and with that in mind, there's a good bit to talk about here. Like, there's not a whole lot. It is very much like all the business of exposition with all the business of story development and character development and stuff. But we do also get quite a few weird and interesting insights, especially into Woland and company. Like, we get to see them in a very new way um, and understand sort of both their roles and their activities in, in some dramatic new ways, ultimately concluding with this big ball at Satan's where, you know, all is revealed and dramatic stuff happens and we perform this rather impressive, if gruesome, ritual. Um, but we're getting our, ahead of ourselves. So obviously, let's start with Margarita, um, both the chapter and the woman. Um, this is, of course, Margarita, the Master's Beloved. Remember back when we, when the Master was telling his life story to poor Ivan Homeless in the Insane Asylum, he refused to disclose the name of his beloved, his, his sort of um, mistress, um, as though this were some sacred responsibility, as though, you know, ears were constantly listening and he was afraid to sort of endanger her. Um, but now it's made very clear to us from the very start, like Bulgakov tells us in the narration that Margar that this is Margarita, um, who we are now following, that this is the master's beloved. Um, and notice her situation here at the beginning of this section, here in this chapter 19. Um, so Bulgakov, like, just straight up tells us all this information in the, in the fourth paragraph here, um, on the first page of chapter 19, page 215. Um, first of all, let us reveal the secret which the master did not mar wish to reveal to Ivanushka. His beloved's name was Margarita Nikolaevna. Everything the master told the poor poet about her was the exact truth. He described his beloved correctly. She was beautiful and intelligent. To that, one more thing must be added. It can be said with certainty that many women would have given anything to exchange their lives for the life of Margarita Nikolaevna. The childless 30-year-old Margarita was the wife of a very prominent specialist who, moreover, had made a very important discovery of state significance. Her husband was young. Handsome, kind, honest, and adored his wife. The two of them, Margarita and her husband, occupied the entire top floor of a magnificent house in a garden on one of the lanes near the Arbat. A charming place. Anyone can be convinced of it who wishes to visit this garden. Let them inquire of me, and I will give them the address, show them the way. The house stands untouched to this day. Notice, she's not unhappy. Like, that's what Bulgakov goes out of his way to emphasize here. Like, she's got it all. Even by, you know, Soviet standards, you know, she is living in practically the lap of luxury. She's got a husband who is devoted to her. Like, everything about her life is good. Notice, too, that he emphasizes the house. Like, she, in, she and her husband occupied the entire top floor of a magnificent house on a garden on one of the lanes near the Arbat. It's a very nice place. And we've seen, you know, like, all of the... the 
problems, the squabbles, how, you know, the master was very satisfied with his two-room basement apartment um, in the middle of nowhere, how, you know, Berlioz and Lakodeev are sharing this this substantial apartment, like this quasi-penthouse of, like, four or five rooms they're splitting it together and they seem to be, you know, doing very well for themselves and everybody is trying to get a hold of this apartment. Margarita is like way better off than any of these people. This is by far the best circumstance that we've seen for any of our characters in the entire book so far. And she's profoundly unhappy. Like, notice that... Notice the emphasis that Bulgakov is, is placing here. Um, notice the way that he describes in the very next paragraph. Margarita Nikolaevna was not in need of money. Margarita Nikolaevna could buy whatever she liked. Among her husband's acquaintances, there were some interesting people. Margarita Nikolaevna had never touched a primus stove. Margarita Nikolaevna knew nothing of the horrors of life in a communal apartment. In short, she was happy? Not for one minute. Never, since the age of 19, when she had married and wound up in this house, had she known any happiness. Gods, my gods, what then did this woman need? What did this woman need, in whose eyes there always burned some enigmatic little fire? What did she need, this witch with a slight cast in one eye, who had adorned herself with mimosa that time in the spring? I do not know. I have no idea. Obviously, she was telling the truth. She needed him, the master, and not at all some gothic mansion, not a private garden, not money. She loved him. She was telling the truth. Notice, Bulgakov doesn't give us an explanation here for what makes Margarita unhappy, but we get little details, little suggestions that sort of reveal what's going on here. Now, she's got, again, everything. She's got the loving husband. She's got the, the fancy house. She's got money. She's got servants. Like, she is well taken care of. And yet, something in her Something in Margarita's character longs for something more. Now, on the one hand, we can definitely chalk this up to her love for the Master. Like, remember way back in the Master's description, love jumped out at us like a murderer wielding a knife. Like, something has radically changed her attitude since falling in love with the Master, but there's something even deeper about this. Something intrinsic to her character. Um, and notice the way Bulgakov describes it. What did she need this witch with a slight cast in one eye? He's sort of suggesting that there's something lurking in Margarita, something powerful, something that leaves her unsatisfied with even happiness, that she needs some more activity, some more power. Margarita deserves better. It is just the quality of her character. Now, we're going to ultimately get a decent explanation from this. Like, when Azazello discovers her and, and starts explaining everything that she needs to do for Woland, um, it is very much emphasized that this is a matter of blood. Um, Koroviev, when, when uh, Margarita is all the way back at, at Satan's in number 302-biz, um, he explains that, like, she is of royal blood. She is a queen, and that there's some, you know, French countess you know, from centuries ago would be shocked to hear that her great-great-great-great-granddaughter would be sitting on the arm of the devil in Moscow. Um, and Koroviev even emphasizes this, that, like, the deck, the, the, the way that blood is transferred from person to person is like shuffling a deck of cards. There's a lot 
to the business of blood that we do not fully appreciate or understand. And even Woland remarks at one point when Margarita comes in to see him um, that the deck was well shuffled in this case. Um, that Margarita is the product of a very curious set of circumstances. There's something very special about her, in short. Um, and while Bulgakov attributes this to bloodline, keep in mind that that bloodline is not visible. That's the important thing here. She is who she is because of her royal lineage, but that royal lineage is confused and complicated by endless sort of connections and, and crossings. It's not the, the, the French countess way back in the past who is, you know, to be assigned purpose here. Like, it's not because of that royal line. It's because of the confusion, because of the shuffling. Like, remember when Byron was talking about something similar, where he was saying that, like, you know, here were this these old Spanish families of the purest bloodline, the purest nobility, and as a consequence, all of them were weak and pathetic. And while, you know, the, the one great aunt or whoever had, you know, tainted the blood, she had saved the flesh. Um, that in sort of mixing with people outside of her class, she's actually doing a great service to her family. Bulgakov isn't quite suggesting it that clearly, but he is suggesting something similar. That what makes Margarita's line so interesting, so exciting, and so powerful is not just her royalty, her royal bloodline, but the fact that that royal bloodline has been mixed and shuffled and, and complicated. Um, it's the mystery that makes her so interesting for Bulgakov. Um, it's the mystery, the complication, the accidents, the, the you know, chance encounters, the, the adulterous affairs. That's what ultimately makes her exciting, um, makes her attractive to Wolin, makes her powerful um, when we see her at the Great Ball of Satan's. Um, and this drives her. Whatever it is about her character, about her lineage, about her blood, shuffled as it may have been, she hungers for more. And it is appropriate to her that she hungers for more. Notice, too, the way that she, you know, pines over the lost master. Um, how she's apparently got, like, this, this box that she keeps all of her mementos um, for him. Like, she has the, this box where, you know, it's got, like, the pressed rose that he gave her. It's got um, the, the album with a, with a photographic portrait of him. Um, it's got the, the deposit slip, like, the money that, she, that he gave her, the 10,000 rubles, which, P.S., she does not need. Like, notice she's never cashed it. She's never done anything with it. She's never had to. Um, and she won't. Like, by the end of this story, the, that 10,000 rubles is still untouched. Um, it will never be that important. Margarita is well enough off that money is not her problem. But notice, too, the most important element of what she contains, the most important memento she has, is the last shred of the novel the master wrote. Um, so notice what she does on page at the bottom of page 218. Going back to her bedroom with these riches, Margarita Nikolaevna set the photograph up on the triple mirror and sat for about an hour holding the fire-damaged book on her knees, leafing through it and rereading that which, after the burning, had neither beginning nor end. The darkness that came from the Mediterranean Sea covered the city hated by the procurator. The hanging bridges connecting the temple with the dread Antonia Tower disappeared. The abyss descended from the sky and flooded the winged gods over the Hippodrome. The Hasmonean Palace with its loopholes, the bazaars, Kevin 
caravanasseries, lanes, pools, Yerushalayim, the great city, vanished as if it had never existed in the world. Now notice this is the last line remaining of the book. And we will actually encounter this last line later on in our next session. Um, that will actually be the first line of the, the next chapter from the pilot novel that we have to read. Um, but this is all that's left for Margarita. Like the, the manuscript has been totally destroyed. The only piece that remains is this one sentence or this one little passage. Um, and notice what the passage is emphasizing here. Th that the passages a passage of description but there are two really important details two sort of important themes that are sort of raised here on the one hand it's the disappearance of Yerushalayim like it's night falling over Jerusalem night falling over Yerushalayim and the description that the master and Bulgakov himself have written here emphasizes that the darkness obscures it all that the hanging bridges, the, the Antonia Tower, the Hippodrome, the Hasmonean Palace, the bazaars, the caravanasseries, they all disappear, vanish as if it had never existed in the world. And there's something appropriate about the fact that this, you know, one last passage of the novel that Margarita treasures so dearly as being the last remnant of, you know, her beloved's greatest work um, is essentially about disappearance about obscuration, about this beautiful, great thing vanishing as though it had never been. Um, but notice, too, that it's in the context of the procurator's hate. Remember, Pilate is so frustrated, so annoyed, so disgusted by having to live in Yerushalayim. That's why he's got his headache way back in chapter 2. That's why, you know, he's so frustrated when he's got to deal with all of these mundane, awful you know, court cases, including Yeshua's. The whole business disgusts him. He's likely in this post because he hates it. And the disappearance of the great city of Yerushalayim is in fact a relief to Pilate. Like, it helps him speed him on his way to, to being able to actually sleep at night, hopefully getting rid of the headache. It's a good thing. Um, so here we have this disappearance of greatness connected with this relief from pain and suffering um and notice that there's something kind of parallel about margarita's transformation here margarita is going to leave moscow like not in the sense of you know she's gonna go away and never come back like she's in fact going to spend most of the night in moscow despite the fact that she's got to like fly away from it first and some fairly weird geographic nonsense um but what she is leaving behind is everything respectable about herself um and that's one of the things that i definitely want to emphasize here margarita sort of willfully departs from human contact in this chapter in, in this section um and notice the way that this sort of plays out here um, like Margarita is, you know, pining over the master, rereading that, that one tiny little section of the book. Um, she hears this rumor from Natasha about Berlioz being buried that day. Remember, it's only like two days. Like, two, it, this is the evening of the second day after Berlioz's death. Like, the first day was him at the Patriarch Ponds listening to the story of Pilate and getting decapitated. The second day is the day of the performance 
Like, this is the one where everybody is, like, cra- crazy trying to prepare for the variety show, the black magic and its exposure. And it goes all the way to, you know, the, the black magic and its exposure show, as well as, like, Rimsky taking off in the dead of night in order to escape. And then the third day is literally Vasily Stepanovich trying to deposit money and it all turning into, you know, foreign currency, as well as all the hijinks that are sort of happening with, like, the the, the random businessmen just bursting into songs spontaneously, um, the money all transforming into, you know, papers and wine bottle slips and bees, um, as well as the women's garments just vanishing off their persons. You know, this is the night of that third day. Like, that's all the time that has transpired in this place. The devil has been in Moscow for just about 48 hours at this point. Like, somewhere between 48 and 72 hours for us to hit the midnight at the ball of, at the Great Ball of Satan's. Um, so, Margarita is, you know, hearing about this funeral. She goes for a walk. She encounters the funeral cortege. But, of course, something strange has happened. Namely, Berlioz's decapitated head has gone missing. Like, this is all that Moscow is buzzing about. Like, on the, on the tram over to, to, the, to the park, she's hearing two people talking about the disappearance of the head. Um, Natasha is, of course, buzzing about, like, the women's garments that are disappearing off of ladies' bodies. Like, L- Moscow is in chaos right now, and this whole disappearance of Berlioz's head just further complicates and makes everything even more chaotic. Um, But notice that as she's sitting in the park, she is encountered by someone we should recognize, namely Azazello. Um, She's sitting on the bench and she's sort of like listening to people talking about the the stolen head and, you know, sort of watching as the the musicians in the funeral cortege are, are going by. And finally, she's interrupted. Um, she says to herself, what a strange funeral and what anguish from that boom. Ah, truly I'd pawn my soul to the devil just to find out whether he's alive or not. It would be interesting to know who they're burying with such astonishing faces. Notice, this is page 222, the second full paragraph on the page, about halfway down. Um, she's listening to the drum, she's listening to the funeral procession, and she's having, you know, these thoughts that interfere with one another. On the one hand, she's thinking about the strange funeral, what anguish, what strange music. But then she's in- she interrupts her own thought. Ah, truly, I'd pawn my soul to the devil just to find out whether he's alive or not. Now, he's, she's not talking about Berlioz here. Like, she was just thinking about Berlioz, but now her thoughts turn to the master. Is he alive or isn't he? And notice that she explicitly says here that she would be willing to pawn her soul to the devil to find out. And this, of course, is immediately when Azazello appears. He explains that it's Berlioz, Mikhail Alexandrovich, chairman of Masalit, who is being buried. And he also explains, ultimately, like through their conversation, that he knows what Margarita is also thinking about. He knows about what she says explicitly about the funeral, but he also knows what she is thinking about implicitly. But notice, too, that it's Azazello. Like... This is such a weird choice that Azazello is the one who ends up meeting her. Like, Azazello even remarks upon this. Um, so, you know, he, like, he and Margarita are t- 
talking about Berlioz at first. Um, and, like, Margarita is first kind of struck by him because, you know, Azazel looks weird to begin with. He's got, like, the bowler hat and the fang, but he apparently also the, the chicken bone. Remember, like, he whacked Berlioz's uncle with the roast chicken and, like, the leg fell off and he proceeded to just, like, eat it. Apparently he's got the bone from the chicken leg just sticking out of his pocket for some reason. Um, but notice, too, that he also explains where the head is gone. Um, so... Like Margarita asks, you know, what, what whatever happened to the to the head, and he says, "This morning in the hall of Griboyadovs, the deceased's head was filched from the coffin." Margarita's like, "How can that be?" And he says, "Devil knows how." The redhead replied casually, "I suppose, however, that it wouldn't be a bad idea to ask Behemoth about it. It was an awfully deft snatch, such a scandal, and above all, it's incomprehensible. Who needs this head and for what?" Notice it's Behemoth who steals the head, because of course it is. Like, freaking cat. Of course he ends up with the head. Um, and apparently it's stolen right from out from under everybody's nose at Griboyadov's, which is part of the reason why it created such a scandal. And Azazello even seems kind of impressed by it. Like, Behemoth has outdone himself on this particular nab and causing this particular level of chaos in Moscow streets. Um, but notice, too that Margarita immediately starts asking about Berlioz. So she asks, you know, who is this Berlioz? Is he the one about in the papers? Yes. So it's writers following the coffin, Margarita points out. And Azazello says, yes. And she asks, do you know Latunsky? Is he there? Is the critic Latunsky among them? Now you'll remember all the way back to the master's story about his manuscript, Latunsky was the particularly egregious critic who, like, attacked the master in the press about pilotism. The one who, you know, was saying that, like, here, comrades, is this, you know, representative, this apologist for Jesus Christ who is trying to slip his supernatural, you know, Christian twaddle into our... our like publications and ultimately this is why the master will get you know caught up by the secret police why he is disappeared for three week for three months um this these critics like latunsky and ariman and the the other guy the the one writer those are the people who ruin the master's life and notice that margarita is vindictive about it she hates latunsky Azazello even sees this and remarks upon it um and for good reason. Again, Latunsky destroyed this guy's life. And notice, you know, in the same way that we've been talking about all of these Russian characters covering their own ass by destroying other people, like Berlioz trying to report the devil to the secret police, or, you know, um, like uh, Veronuka trying to report all of the strange telegrams to the secret police in order to keep from being, you know, involved in whatever's going on with Lakodeev. Um, Latunsky is absolutely doing the same thing, but if anything, it's even more egregious. Like, the, the editor who the master originally gives the manuscript to, he has to pass it on to the critics. Latunsky, Araman, and then this other writer whose name I forget, Mitslav, I think. Um, and all three of them read this manuscript... And this manuscript is obviously never going to get published. It would never make it past the censors. But Latunsky and company all published their own attacks on the unpublished manuscript to, again, protect themselves. 
one to get their names out there you know it's profitable it get it makes them more famous it makes them the them more like popular with the crowd so it advances their own careers but it also covers their butts like we are specifically dis- distancing ourselves from this author who yes you've never heard of because nothing he's ever written has been published they are saying we are distancing ourselves from these people so the censors won't come after us like if we didn't publish this aggressive assault on this writer we could theoretically be assumed to be collaborating with him that we might you know accept what he has to say so Latunsky has gone out of his way to destroy this innocent man's life for covering up the truth like he's doing the same thing lying to cover his own ass or at the very best you know just like covering up truth to cover his own ass um and margarita is ticked about it like she does not forget this um when azazello points out latunsky to her he can see that she's enraged um but now like just a little while afterwards margarita is getting frustrated with azazello azazello knows too much about her doesn't have anything to say about it she initially worries that he's like gonna arrest her that she is an agent of the secret police like trying to you know trap her or something um but ultimately you know he has nothing to do with it um so she has this line on page 224 like um when when azazella reveals he has been sent to her on business she responds you ought to have begun with that straight off do you want to arrest me and he says nothing of the kind what is it you start a conversation right away it's got to be an arrest um, notice the paranoia of all the citizens in Moscow extends to Margarita, and Azazello, just like most of the Devil's compatriots, are still baffled by this. Like, they do not understand why everybody is jumping to the conclusion that they're just going to be arrested. Um, again, I suspect that he understands the way that the secret police work, but he doesn't understand why people are so afraid of them. There are worse things to be afraid of. The Devil should definitely know. Um... But eventually, Margarita wants to get rid of him, and Azazel is getting ready to walk away when finally he drops that line. The darkness that came from the Mediterranean Sea covered the city hated by the procurator. So you too, he says, can just vanish away along with your burnt notebook and dried up rose. Sit here on the bench alone and entreat him to set you free, to let you breathe the air, to go from your memory. Notice what Azazel says here. He uses that same image I just talked about, that image of the city vanishing, and he threatens Margarita with it. You too will vanish if you choose to forget the master. Now, just a little while before, Margarita was dwelling on this. She basically was forced to admit she's either going to have to forget the master or kill herself. There's no way that she can survive, that she can go on loving him. Uh, And Azazello knows this. Azazello knows this and therefore quotes the book back at her, and Margarita goes pale. She panics. I don't understand any of this, she says. It's, pos- it's possible to find out about the pages, get in, snoop around, you bribe Natasha, but how could you find out my thoughts? Who are you? From which institution? Again, she assumes that he's from the secret police, and he's just like, what a bore, and explains just a little bit here. But notice, too, that Azazello is also frustrated by this work altogether. Like, this is not Azazello's job. 
Like on page 226, about halfway down, he emphasizes difficult folk, these women. He put his hands in his pockets and stretched his legs way out. Why, for instance, was I sent on this business? Behemoth should have gone. He's a charmer. No dramas, no dramas, he emphasizes a little while later. You must also put my, yourself in my position. To give some administrator a pasting, or chuck an uncle out of the house, or gun somebody down, or any other trifle of the sort. That's right in my line. But talking with a woman in love? No thanks. It's half an hour now that I've been wangling you into it. So you'll go? Notice that Azazello doesn't like this diplomacy nonsense. He emphasizes, you know, yeah, you want me to, like, rough up some administrator or chuck the uncle out of the house by beating him over the head with a roast chicken? Yeah, call Azazello. That's my gig. That's what I do. I am a heavy. I am an enforcer. I am Satan's tough. But why would you send me to go fetch some, you know, pining young woman um, and try and, like politely engage her into the devil's business that's that's behemoth's job he's the he's the wangler as as azazello puts it um he's the one who is you know good with the ladies but notice there's something kind of appropriate about azazello being the one sent to margarita um that margarita's energy her vivacity that mysterious quality of hers brought about by that shuffling of the the bloodline deck um Azazello has a similar strength. Azazello is similarly straightforward. Like, if Behemoth had been sent to Margarita, you can imagine him doing all the same stuff we've seen him doing this whole time. Being overly polite and, like, bowing and scraping to people. But also, you know, he's a cat, and Margarita probably wouldn't have taken him all that seriously. Azazello is just strange enough and the perfect level of willful. Um, Azazello doesn't try and mince words. Azazello doesn't try and play games. That's not his line. He is direct and to the point, and Margarita appreciates that. That's what she needs right now. Enough games, enough double dealing. Margarita is sick to death with lies and deceptions. It is time for the truth. And that's very much what happens here. You know, notice, again, as we've emphasized, the devil has always been about exposure, about sort of revealing the secrets lying in the Moscow society's underbelly. And Margarita has this deep secret that's eating her away. She loves the master. She has, you know, been in love with him for a long time. She has already, you know, even when the master was telling the story about her coming to him, you know, after he'd burned the manuscript, she emphasizes he, she had let it, let the secret go on for too long. She should have told her husband. But as it happened, she didn't. And then when the master had disappeared, there seemed to be no point for it. And for three years, she pined without knowing anything about it. Now, she's been living under the secret for so long that it's a part of her. And it, she hates it. She's frustrated by it. She's pushing back against it. And what Azazello gives her, the opportunity Azazello offers to her is to live truly, to stop playing games, to stop engaging a deception. But notice, too, that this is tied inextricably to selling your soul to the devil. Like, as she says when Azazello first appears to her that she would give her soul to the devil to know whether or not the master was alive or not. Um, throughout this passage, this discussion with Azazello, she seems to be emphasizing, you know, she seems to be very aware of the fact that she is making this argument, this deal. 
Um, so on page 227, a couple paragraphs down, she says, understood, this thing is pure gold, you can tell by the weight. So then, I understand perfectly well that I'm being bribed and drawn into some shady story for which I'm going to pay dearly. Now, Azazello pushes back against this. No, that's not what's happening here, he in insists. But she seems to be okay with it. She seems to almost be pushing herself into it. No, wait, she says, I know what I'm getting into. But I'm getting into it on account of him, because I have no more hope for anything in this world. But I want to tell you that if you're going to ruin me, you'll be ashamed. Yes, ashamed. I'm perishing on account of love. And striking herself on the breast, Margarita glanced at the sun. Oh no, exclaimed Margarita, shocking the passers-by. I agree to everything. I agree to perform this comedy of rubbing in the ointment. Agree to go to the devil and beyond. I won't give it back. As much as Azazello keeps trying to, like, take the cream back from her, no, you're, you're making too much of a big deal about this. This isn't a deal with the devil situation. Margarita is insistent upon it. No, she wants to give her soul to the devil. No, she wants to separate herself from life, from Moscow society. She is ready for this. She does it for her beloved, for the master. And notice she embraces this evil wholeheartedly. This is her salvation. This is her redemption, in a sense. And that's what's so strange about Margarita's interactions here. And we'll see it again. Like, after she is flying around and, and is, like, breaking all the windows of Latunsky's apartment, um, she gets confronted by this, like, little kid sitting in bed. Um, it's this great, wonderful little scene um, and, you know, the, the kid is like, who's breaking all these windows? And she says, yeah, it's this little kid with a slingshot. Um, and the boy's like, oh, it's my friend Sitnik. And she's like, sure, it, of course it's Sitnik. Um, and, you know, the kid can't see her, so she's like, so he says, you know, where are you, ma'am? And Margarita responds, I'm nowhere, I'm your dream. This is page 240, by the way. Um, I thought so, said the boy. Lie down now, Margarita ordered. Put your hand under your cheek and I'll go on being your dream. Well, be my dream then, the boy agreed, and at once lay down and put his hand under his cheek. I'll tell you a story, Margarita began, and placed her hot hand on his cropped head. Once there was a certain lady, and she had no children, and generally no happiness either. And so first she cried for a long time, and then she became wicked. Margarita fell silent and took away her hand. The boy was asleep. Notice how Margarita emphasizes this. She became wicked. Like, she's telling her own story here. And notice that that emphasis about she having no children and generally no happiness would seem to suggest that, again, you know, that might be one of the things that's m seriously missing from her life. That's part of the reason why she's so dissatisfied with what should otherwise give her such happiness. But notice, too, this excitement about it. This willingness to be wicked. How like, full-heartedly, she throws herself into her wickedness. How immediately she becomes a witch. You know, all she has to do is, is cover herself with the cream. And yes, there's something superficial that changes. Like, we're, we're told that, you know, her face becomes younger. Like, she sees herself as at 20, where she's 30 years old at this point in time. But also that this joy bubbles up in her. That something external is happening to her, it changes her, so she, now she has, like, the ability to fly, and she can, you know, she's young again, and she's apparently got these magical powers, but also this joy, this recommitment to life, this invigoration. 
something about this cream, about this selling one soul to the devil in Margarita's case, makes her powerful. But notice again that when we say selling your soul to the devil, we don't mean what we've been talking about with Marlowe or with Goethe or with the devil and Tom Walker. Like this isn't, you know, giving yourself up. No, again, throughout this novel, we've seen the devil is a force for truth and for justice. As much as he is evil, like he is playing practical jokes and he does straight up murder people, especially at the end of the Great Ball, as much as all of this is diabolical and wrong, it is still a force that is powerful, a force that is true, and a force that is diametrically opposed to all of the shenanigans in Moscow, all of the deceptions, all the self-deceptions, all those power structures threatening people into telling lies for the sake of covering their butts. Margarita's done with that. And by covering herself with the cream, yes, she enslaves herself to Satan. She agrees to abide by the satanic pact. But at the same time, she totally frees herself from all of the evil connections, all of the evil things she's been doing to herself, all of the self-harm that she has been conducting for the sake of protecting her identity, for protecting her lies, for protecting her deceptions. She is free. Like, as much as this is enslavement, selling one soul to the devil, it is a freeing of her from all of the black magic that we've seen up until this point. If the devil is engaged in exposing the black magic of Soviet society, this is how Margarita frees herself from all of that double talk, from all of that political nonsense. She escapes with the devil's help. And she embraces her wickedness. She embraces the fact that, like, as soon as she finds Latunsky's apartment, she, like, busts in and she destroys the place. And notice, like, this is the most vivid description of destruction we've seen since, you know, we had the master destroying his manuscript in the fireplace. But notice the contrast between the way that these two destructive acts work. Like, when the master destroyed his manuscript, it was painful. He tore his fingernails, and it wouldn't burn. He had to stab it with the poker and tear the notebooks in half. Like, it was violent and resistant. But by contrast, Margarita destroys Latunsky's apartment with ease. Naked and invisible, the lady flyer tried to control and talk Sensun to herself. Her hands trembled with impatience. Taking careful aim, Margarita struck at the keys of the grand piano, and a first plaintive wail passed all through the apartment. Becker's drawing room instrument, not guilty of anything, cried out frenziedly. Its keys caved in. Ivory veneer flew in all directions. The instrument howled, wailed, rasped, and jangled. With the noise of a pistol shot, the polished upper soundboard split under a hammer blow. Breathing hard, Margarita tore and mangled the strings with the hammer. Finally getting tired, she left off and flopped into an armchair to catch her breath. This initial destruction of the piano is, in fact, exhausting. Notice the, the, the details here. That, like, she has to... The, the instrument cries out frenziedly. But notice, too, that the ivory flies in all directions. Like, the emphasis of, of the, the language here, at least in Peter and Volokonsky's language is that as much as this is difficult, it is also joyful. It is explosive. It is noisy. And, you know, it, it, like the, 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 uh, the one board splits under the hammer like a pistol shot. Like there's something celebratory about this. And then it gets 
further. Like, there's water running in the bathroom, in the kitchen, um, and now it's, like, flooding the apartment because she's apparently turned on all the taps at this point, even though we haven't, like, seen her actually do this. But then it gets even greater. Like, there's something orgasmic about this destructive act, about Margarita finally letting go of this. You know, here she is naked in this critic's apartment, systematically destroying everything that he has flooding his apartment, destroying the piano with a hammer. And then she she's carrying buckets of water from the kitchen to the critic's study and emptying them into his desk drawers. Then, after smashing the door of the bookcase in the same study with her hammer, she rushed to the bedroom. Shattering the mirror on the wardrobe, she took out the critic's dress suit and drowned it in the tub. A large bottle of ink picked up in the study she poured over the luxuriously plumped-up double bed. The devastation she wrought afforded her a burning pleasure, and yet it seemed to her all the while that the results came out somehow meager. Therefore, she started doing whatever came along. She smashed pots of ficus in the room with the grand piano. Before finishing that, she went bed back to the bedroom, slashed the sheets with a kitchen knife, and broke the glass on the framed photographs. She felt no fatigue. Only the sweat poured from her in streams. Again, notice the physical relationship here. She's getting off on this. And I don't mean this in, like, a crass or, or mean or even vulgar way. Like, this is joyful. This is Margarita expressing her anger, her righteous hatred for the critic Latunsky, and the destruction she's doing is her expression. It is artistic. It is magnificent. It is creative. It is joyful. It is as destructive and as wonderful as a firework. And it's described like that, fast and rapid and it's you know exhausting like she's covered with sweat and yet she's invigorated by it she's not tired she's not fatigued but she's you know covered with sweat like a lover you know there is something very strange in, in the combination here and notice too that it just keeps going like the person downstairs is you know getting like there's water dripping from the ceiling and finally like the the ceiling is starting to collapse because of the the damage that she's wreaking she starts like breaking the windows from the outside like she jumps back on her broom and she's using the hammer to smash each of the windows and we get these descriptions about it like about them exploding. Um, the one description on 238, the panes sobbed and splinters went cascading down the marble-faced wall. Like, there's something wonderful about this. The descriptions here are happy, joyful. You know, when the master destroyed his manuscript, it was laborious and painful and slow. But when Margarita destroys the apartment, it's joyful and, like, raucous and excited. It's like a party in, in its own way. And, you know, we get this description from Bulgakov that when Latunsky comes back to his apartment, he's, like, beside himself. Yes, they say that to this day the critic Latunsky turns pale remembering that terrible evening, and to this day he utters the name of Berlioz with veneration because he was at the funeral and therefore narrowly evaded being likely murdered by Margarita with the same reckless abandonment of joy in righteous vengeance. Um... Latunsky is terrified when he comes back to his apartment because it has been so, like, malevolently destroyed. Like, there's nothing, uh, there's no sense of profit here. There's no sense of greed. It's just Margarita expressing herself. You know, it's like a Jackson Pollock painting, but with shards of glass and destroyed pianos and ink spilled all over the bed. Like, it's hard to express this because it is so uncharacteristic but 
you know, there is this joy in this violence here, and Margarita takes great joy in this violence, and Bulgakov encourages us to enjoy it as well. Like, this whole passage, start to finish, with Margarita, you know, starting in her, her depression and despair, being saved, so to speak, by Azazello's offer, and then just gaily flying off into the sky, like shouting at Nikonor Ivanovich and throwing her shift at him. You know, there's just this wonderful energy about it, this liberation. Margarita is released. And she is a, a tornado in her own right. Like, she is a fireball. She destroys everything that she comes across, and she destroys it with glee. Like, it's so happy about it. You know, I emphasized before that Bulgakov takes great joy in the vengeances executed throughout this book. Nowhere is it more obvious than when Margarita takes to the sky, flies off into the night, and just destroys all of the people, all of the bad things that have wrecked her up until this point. Like, it's just this vivacious, energetic jaunt. Like, so much pleasure, so much happiness, so much release. Um, and we even get from Natasha, like Natasha, her, her handmaid, shows up riding a flying pig, who turns out to also be um, Nikolai Ivanovich, like the, the guy who lived on the, the basement floor. Like apparently she he came up after Margarita took off into the night. Um, and he like is supposedly returning the shift to Margarita's bedroom, but then like he propositions Natasha, and Natasha turns him into a pig appropriately. Only he's like a pig, but he's still wearing his his hat and carrying his briefcase, and is like panicking about still needing to do paperwork. Um, and Natasha asks her, you know, intercede for me that I can stay a witch. Margarita has been granted power, and Natasha wants her power as well. Like, I realize that, you know, there, there's all of this... In the late 20th century and the, the beginning of the 21st century, there has been this big move to sort of, like, emphasize and celebrate women's power. Like, um, the, the, you know, various feminist movements, especially in the second, third, and fourth wave, insofar as that's a thing, have very much emphasized this sort of, you know, like, women taking back what was rightfully theirs. Notice that that's exactly what Margarita and Natasha are doing here. And at the same time, like, as much as, you know, American literature and American, like, television and movies and so on have, have always, have sort of managed to achieve this in various ways, oftentimes it's not nearly as happy about it as we see here. Like, think of Jennifer Lawrence in The Hunger Games or, or you know, Sigourney Weaver in Alien, like... When women get to take the power back in contemporary popular culture, it's usually framed as, you know, they are being threatened. Some, you know, horrible patriarchal system is taking advantage of them, and they do all that they can, and finally they, like, break free, and they, they overcome their aggressor. But notice, like, that's not the emphasis here. Margarita is happy, or should be happy, there's no societal thing oppressing her except her own situation, but she takes it back anyway. Like, she's not, you know, she's not impoverished, she's not abused, she's not, you know, damaged in some way. She is a vivacious, capable, intelligent woman, and she takes back the night hard. Like, nothing can stand up to her. She is extraordinarily powerful. And there is no guilt. 
There is no weakness. There is no sadness. There is no tragedy. There is no despair. There is no, you know, damagedness about her. This is just for the pure love and joy of destruction, of just doing what is right, of doing what appeals to her. There is such pleasure in this. Um, this is like the closest thing that I can compare it to, like in, in the last you know, 10 years of movies and TV that I can think of is, you know, you get Elsa singing Let It Go in Frozen, like throwing off all of her old experience, all of her old responsibilities, and just, I'm going to make myself an ice palace and fuck all y'all. But notice that even that comes with the comeuppance. Like, also, she freezes the entire city and, like, everyone's going to die because of her. There's nothing like that here. Margarita just takes off into the night, destroys Latunsky's apartment, sings Let It Go, and there is no punishment. There is no guilt. There is no comeuppance. She is right to do this. It is absolutely seizing what is rightfully hers. And even, you know, Woland and company, they all admire her for this. Like, as much as it's emphasized that this has happened a, apparently a bunch of times, that Margarita has, like you know they always have a ball and they always need a woman named margarita and she always has to be of royal blood like notice that when um when woland is actually first introduced to her and, and he makes that remark about the way that the deck has been has been shuffled um you know we get this description and and he compliments her like everyone seems to compliment her she is unique even among like all of the the uniqueness um so you know you've you've got this this great line that that Kuroviev gives us describing what he is responsible or what she is responsible to do um on line on page 251 he says well and so ma'am and so we're enemies of any sort of reticence and mysteriousness again they are the relentless exposers um, they reject lies, mystery, deceptions. Messiah gives one ball annually, he says. It is called the spring ball or of the full moon or the ball of the hundred kings. Such a crowd! Here Koroviev held his cheek as if he had a toothache. However, I hope you'll be convinced of it yourself. Now, Messiah is a bachelor, as you yourself, of course, understand. Yet a hostess is needed. Without a hostess, you must agree. And Margarita listens to her, him the whole time. But when, finally, she's introduced to Woland... Like, Woland and, and Behemoth are sitting there playing chess with these apparently, like, animate chess pieces, and Behemoth, as always, is, like, clowning around. Like, he drops the chess piece when Margarita comes in, and he's, like, scuffling under the bed to get the piece, and Woland is getting increasingly annoyed by him as he goes. Um, but as, you know, when Margarita comes in and all this hubbub sort of takes place, Margarita, uh, like... Um, Woland says, you know, out with you to, to Behemoth. The game is cancelled. The guest has arrived. And Kroviev prompts her, by no means, Messiah. And she repeats it. By no means, Messiah. Margarita repeated softly but distinctly, gaining control over herself. And she added with a smile, I beg you not to interrupt your game. I imagine the chess journals would pay good money for the chance to publish it. Notice that the first line, the, the deference, the by no means messiah, is prompted by Koroviev, but Margarita adds the rest herself. Margarita replied softly but distinctly, gaining control over herself, and she added with a smile, I beg you not to interrupt your game. I imagine the chess journals would pay good money for the chance to publish it. She tells a joke, 
And it is a joke in excellent taste. It is a joke that flatters Woland, that flatters his authority, his position as devil. Like, it is significant that Margarita immediately fits this role that she has been given as the, you know, hostess of the night ball of the devil's retinue. And notice the response, too. Azazello gave a low but approving grunt, and Woland, looking intently at Margarita, observed as if to himself, Yes, Koroviev is right. How whimsically the deck has been shuffled. Blood! Notice that's a compliment. It is a high compliment. How whimsically the deck has been shuffled. How strange the weird combinations of bloodline, this weird genetic lineage of yours that has brought you to this point. What a perfect woman you are, he is basically saying. Not in such crass terms as saying, you know, that it's sexual or something, but on some existential level, Margarita is powerful and strong and capable and good in the sense of being good at the job that she has been given. Now, notice too, you know, like, I do definitely want to emphasize that point that Krovia makes about being the enemies of reticence and mysteriousness as well. Um, you'll notice once again we get this sort of direct contrast. Krovia has this great little speech early on when, when Margarita meets him where he explains how the, the apartment works. Like Margarita walks into apartment number number 302 and she's shocked at how huge it is. Like gigantic front hall, gigantic bedroom. Like it's going to be even bigger once once the ball starts. And they've got this enormous like stairwell with the fireplaces that all the guests are going to come through. And she's like, how could this possibly fit in a Moscow apartment? That's absurd. Um, as she says, no, replied Margarita. Most of all, I'm struck that there's room for all this. And Kroviev replies, the most uncomplicated thing of all. For someone well acquainted with the fifth dimension, it costs nothing to expand space to the desired proportions. I'll say more, esteemed lady, to devil knows what proportions. Notice, for Kroviev, this is a simple trick. Like, expanding the amount of space in a given three-dimensional space is no problem when you're familiar with the fifth dimension. It's nothing. It's nothing to be impressed by. It's nothing to show off. But notice how he contrasts this. I'll say more, esteemed lady, to devil knows what proportions. I, however, Kroviev went on chattering, have known people who had no idea, not only of the fifth dimension, but generally of anything at all, and who nevertheless performed absolute wonders in expanding their space. Thus, for instance, one city dweller, as I've been told, having obtained a three-room apartment on Zelmyovny Val, transformed it instantly, without any fifth dimension or other things that addle the brain, into a four-room apartment by dividing one room in half with a partition. He forthwith exchanged that one for two separate apartments in different parts of Moscow, one of three rooms, the other of two. You must agree that that makes five. The three-room one he exchanged for two separate ones, each of two rooms, and became the owner, as you can see for yourself, of six rooms, true, scattered in total disorder all over Moscow. He was just getting ready to perform his last and most brilliant leap by advertising the newspapers that he had wanted to exchange six rooms in different parts of Moscow for one five-room apartment on Zelmyovny Val when his activity ceased for reasons independent of him. Notice the story that Kroviev tells here to contrast it. On the one hand, Koroviev and the Devil and Behemoth have all managed to turn this one apartment into a much bigger apartment using the simple method of expanding the fifth dimension. But then he tells this story by contrast of this apartment slicker, as he puts it, this con man 
who put up a simple temporary partition in one of the rooms of his three bed of his three room apartment in order to claim that it was a four room apartment and then started a series of exchanges all over Moscow swapping the four-room apartment that is actually a three-room apartment for both a three- and two-room apartment, and then swapping the three-room apartment for two two-rooms apartments, so now he has three two-room apartments, so six rooms total, which he is then hoping to exchange for a five-room apartment. And Kuroviev emphasizes that this is much more impressive, much more devious, much more tricksy, that using the fifth dimension is no trouble at all. It's simple as, as anything. Black magic as performed by the devil, the actual supernatural power is simple and straightforward and in some ways clean. By contrast, here is the black magic of Soviet politics, of Soviet society, where this one sneaky individual can magic his one three-room apartment into a five-room apartment. Only, of course, he's interrupted. He's arrested by the secret police. And that, too, is black magic. Um, notice the contrast here. Just as we've emphasized throughout this book, just as Margarita herself has demonstrated by freeing herself from this dark, twisted world of, like, dodges and double dodges and politics and, you know, lying and trickery, by contrast, here is Koroviev and Woland and the entire retinue of the devil. We are enemies of any sort of reticence and mysteriousness. There's no trickery here. It's simple and straightforward. Yes, we have used the five dimensions, but that's easy as pie once you understand what's going on. Now, the one exception to this might be Behemoth. Like, Behemoth does do his fair share of clowning here. Like, I absolutely love, you know, the whole interaction over the chess game where, like, he dives under the under the bed and Woolen's like, get out of there. And he comes out and he's, like, wearing a bow tie and his whiskers have been gilded. Like, there's, like, gold... There's, like, gold guilt on his whiskers like this is the way that he dresses himself up and when everybody makes fun of him about it he's like what you guys get to shave and put like powder on your faces but if you shave a cat it's positively indecent so instead i guilt my whiskers and gold is better than powder anyway so shut up like this is the first we actually get to see behemoth like doing his role as woolen's fool as his you know clown so to speak and it's a riot um, we get the scene where, like, Behemoth is, like, making faces at his chess king, and the king finally gets the, the trick and, like, wanders off the board, and the bishop shows up and takes the king's mantle and puts it on. So when Woland is like, your king is in check, Behemoth is like, I don't see any king. What king? There's You, you must agree that, like, a king can't be in check if it's nowhere to be seen on the board. And Woland is like, oh my gosh, you are the worst. Um, but it's funny like it's silly it is just so characteristic of him you know he's saving face he refuses to to you know be dishonored by losing the game so he comes up with a stupid cheat um and everyone sees through it immediately that's the key here like as much as behemoth lies and deceives it's so incredibly transparent and everybody sees through it and everybody laughs and everybody also tells him to shut up and you know play fair the one time that behemoth goes too far is actually at the ball itself um and i want to sort of get to that point a little bit because again i know i'm running out of time and somehow i've managed to cover an hour without even getting to the great ball at satan's um notice that margarita's primary responsibility here is to greet the guests and there are a ton of guests to the point that like it is such exhausting work 
Um, partially because they're hanging the giant, like, poodle picture around her neck, apparently. Like, this is the, you know, symbol of Satan's office. Um, remember the poodle from, from Goethe, as we saw, like, the poodle-headed stick in the first chapter of the book? Um, she is wearing this horrible poodle necklace and also, like, resting her, her leg on a pillow and resting her arm on a post. And she's still exhausted from the sheer act of greeting, like, literally thousands, if not millions, of damned guests. And Kuroviev and Behemoth support her through the whole process. Like, they stand beside her and, and sort of, like, help her to greet all these guests. And Kuroviev especially is the one who's constantly telling her, you know, here is this guy, he poisoned the, the king and, and took his mistress. And here is this woman who, you know, poisoned her husband and became the consort of the king. And here's this person who, you know, cut holes in, in the, the wall of the dressing room so people could, like, peek peep in at the women getting dressed in their dresses but everybody knew that this was what was happening um like there's all of these assassins and murderers and horrible people and they all show up in these dramatic fashions like they show up out of the fireplace springing out of coffins or falling off the gallows like all of them you know sort of pretending like their death is a great honor um, and some of them, too, are also punished in various ways. They still carry the symbols of their punishment, like Queen Tanafa, who is still wearing the Spanish boot, which is like this wooden thing that, that is, you know, meant to hobble and torture you. Um, apparently she can't get it off. Um, we're, we're led through, like, hundreds, hundreds of these people, perhaps even thousands or millions, as I stressed. Like, it's unclear exactly how many people show up, besides the fact that it is apparently hours of just greeting them. Um, and even when the, the clock chimes midnight, Margarita feels like that's it should have passed long ago. Like, time itself seems to have also been distorted in this place. Um, but on the one that sort of stands out, the only one that Margarita remembers, like, she's even introduced to such famous figures as Caligula um, and doesn't pay them any mind, but the one that does stick out is this woman, Frieda. And her case is especially interesting, and we'll be coming back to it later, so I want to stress it here. Um, so let's watch this whole scene play out. Um, so on page 267, like, about three paragraphs down, uh, we get this line, Now a steady stream was coming up the stairs from below. Margarita could no longer see what was going on in the front hall. She mechanically raised and lowered her hand and smiled uniformly to the guests. There was a hum in the air on the landing. From the ballrooms Margarita had left, music could be heard, like the sea. So it's been a while, and it's just getting longer. Like, Margarita is just getting warmed up, and there are so many people, so many greetings. It is already tiring her out. Um... But we get Koroviev leaning over and says, But this one is a boring woman, Koroviev no longer whispered, but spoke aloud, knowing that in the hubbub of voices no one would hear him. She adores balls and keeps dreaming of complaining about her handkerchief. Margarita's glance picked out among those coming up the woman at whom Koroviev was pointing. She was young, about twenty, of remarkably beautiful figure, but with somehow restless and importunate eyes. What handkerchief? asked Margarita. She has a chambermaid assigned to her, explained Koroviev, who for 30 years has been putting a handkerchief on her night table during the night. She wakes up and the handkerchief is there. She's tried burning it in the stove and drowning it in the river, but nothing helps. What handkerchief? whispered Margarita, raising and lowering her arm. A blue bordered one. The thing is that when she worked in a cafe, the owner once invited her to the pantry, and nine months later she gave birth to a boy, took him to the forest, stuffed the handkerchief into his mouth, and then buried the boy in the ground. At the trial, she said she had no way of feeding the child. Notice, this is very different from the rest of the stories we hear here. 
all of the great honored guests at Satan's Ball are, for the most part, famous, horrible people. Murderers and torturers and perverts and just a wide variety of people who wear their crimes on their sleeves, who are not ashamed of what they've done, who have done truly terrible things and have done it gladly. Which is significant because Margarita is kind of in the same boat at this point. Remember, she embraces her wickedness. She is true to form. Um, she is no longer hiding. She is no longer reticent, and therefore she fits neatly with the devil's retinue, who are all about exposing lies and deceptions and untruths. But Frieda is different. Frieda commits a crime out of necessity. She is seduced by the owner of her business. Like, the, she worked in a cafe, the owner invites her into the pantry, they have sex, presumably he forces her, and then she gives birth to a baby, can't feed it, and therefore strangles it in the woods and buries it. And the handkerchief that she used to, to gag her child... She is tormented so that that handkerchief appears at her bedside table night after night. She can try and get rid of it. She, you know, has tried burning it in the stove and drowning it in the river, but it always, always comes back. She is, in short, haunted by her crime. And the, her punishment in hell is to be constantly reminded of that crime. But notice the question that Margarita asks here. Where is the owner of the cafe? asked Margarita i.e. why is this woman who has obviously just been victimized first by the cafe owner and then by society for condemning her for something really she couldn't control where is the real criminal here notice too that this story reeks of goethe's faust like remember the story of margareta in goethe's faust how faust seduced her and then you know faust killed her brother and gave her the sleeping draught which actually poisoned and killed her mother he you know she gave birth to this baby but she couldn't support it because she was begging and you know she was outcast by society for having sex out of wedlock so she drowns the child this is very similar to freida's story here and it's almost as though margarita this resonates with her like, in some former version of herself, Margareta knows this story, has done this deed, and therefore sympathizes with her. That's why she sticks out to her. So she asks, and where is the owner of the cafe? And notice Behemoth's response. Queen, the cat suddenly creaked from below. What, may I ask, does the owner have to do with it? Wasn't he who smothered the infant in the forest? Behemoth is probably telling a joke here. It is a particularly unsympathetic and unkind joke, but a joke nonetheless. And notice Margarita's response. Margarita, without ceasing to smile and proffer her right hand, dug the sharp nails of the left into Behemoth's ear and whispered to him, If you, scum, allow yourself to interfere in the conversation again. Behemoth squeaked in a not very ball-like fashion and rasped, Queen, the ear will get swollen. Why spoil the, the ball with the swollen ear? I, I was speaking legally from the legal point of view. I say no more. I say no more. Consider me not a cat but a post. Only let go of my ear. Margarita does not appreciate this joke, and neither should we. Behemoth tells the joke, in part because, you know, like, it is a sort of wry and horrible satire that he is doing here. Like, he does seem to notice the, you know, he emphasizes the legality of the situation. 
And there is an irony to what he is saying, an irony that, you know, it is true that it's wrong that the owner of the cafe is not punished while the woman is. But it is an irony that Margarita is not willing to tolerate because it's an irony that life itself delivers more than enough of without the help of asinine assholes like Behemoth bringing it up. And this too is where we should probably remember what evil actually looks like. You know, for all that I've been emphasizing, you know, Margarita sells her soul to the devil willingly and that wickedness is a a positive alternative to the, the black magic of Soviet politics and society. Evil is still evil. And as far as Behemoth is concerned, there's a certain joy, a certain awful, ironic pleasure that he takes in seeing a society that punishes the wrong person, that punishes the woman who is left with no recourse but to, you know, kill her own child, rather than punish the man whose guilt is ignored, for the most part. Margarita, like Goethe, is sympathetic to the victim. And she is not willing to tolerate Behemoth's indifference to that victim's suffering. That's the difference here. Margarita is wicked, but not evil. Behemoth is both. And as much fun as it has been to watch Behemoth revel in his evil where it is actually needed, where the truth of the situation needs to be brought up against the the surmounting lies and deceptions of Soviet society, this is where he goes too far. This is where evil is just straight evil where it remains wrong, where it is still unjust. And as much as it may be a joke, and as much as Behemoth seems to, you know, protect himself by saying it's a joke, it's not a funny one. And Margarita very much emphasizes this. But notice, too, her reaction to Frieda herself. So Frieda says, I am happy, Queen Hostess, to be invited to the great ball of the full moon, and I am glad to see you, Margarita answered her. Very glad. Do you like champagne? And Kroviev whispers, What are you doing, queen? There'll be a traffic jam. But Margarita ignores him. Yes, I do, the woman said, imploringly, and suddenly began repeating mechanically, Frieda, 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 my name is Frieda, queen. Get drunk tonight, Frieda, and don't think about anything, said Margarita. Notice that Margarita takes sympathy on Frieda. She she tells her, you know, go get drunk, go lose yourself, go, you know, forget all of the awful things that you have been forced into doing and all the things that have happened to you since. Forget the torment that Satan visits on you every night with that handkerchief repeatedly showing up on your night table. Forget you've earned it. You have been victimized enough. And as much as Koroviev both emphasizes at the outset that it's a boring case, something that he's not interested in, Because it is, again, an evil brought about by virtue, and therefore not something that he's terribly keen to emphasize. Here, he also tries to get her to push her along. Like, she's just another member of the crowd. Don't give her special treatment. The other guests will get jealous or offended. And Margarita doesn't care, because Frieda is special. Her case is sympathetic. She, unlike the poisoners and murderers and assassins and adulterers, isn't as guilty, isn't as terrible. Margarita, in short, takes mercy on her. Remember that, because we will be seeing her again. Now, the other thing that I do want to sort of emphasize is the end here of the Great Ball. 
the big finale, Satan finally sort of revealing his purposes and what the Great Ball is for in the first place. Um, so starting on page 273, we see Wolin finally come out. Like for the entire night, he has not been visible. We don't know where he is. And finally he makes his appearance. Limping, Wolin stopped at his dais and immediately Azazella was before him with a platter in his hands. And on this platter, Margareta saw a man's severed head with the front teeth knocked out. Total silence continued to reign, broken only once by the far-off sound, inexplicable under the circumstances, of a doorbell coming as if from the front hall. We'll come back to the doorbell. But I want to emphasize what Wolin looks like as well. And the line before it says, the same dirty patched shirt from the bedroom when they had talked and he was playing chess with Behemoth, the same dirty patched shirt hung on his shoulders. His feet were in worn-out bedroom slippers. Wolund had a sword, but he used this bare sword as a cane, leaning on it. Now notice, everyone else is dressed up for the occasion. Like, Margarita is totally decked out. You know, Behemoth's got his gilded whiskers, which admittedly at this point have washed off because he, like, pulled this stunt where he, like, jumped into the, the champagne fountain and it turned into cognac and, like, everybody got drunk off their ass by it. Um, Kuroviev and Azazello and Hela are all dressed to the nines. Here comes Woland in his bedroom slippers and his dirty patched shirt, leaning on his sword as though it were a cane. Now Azazello brings him a platter, and on the platter is a severed head. We should be able to guess at this point what the severed head is. We were told Behemoth stole Berlioz's severed head from Grimboyadovs just earlier that evening. Mikhail Alexandrovich Woland addressed the head in a low voice, and then the slain man's eyelids rose, and on the dead face Margarita saw, with a shudder, living eyes filled with thought and suffering. Woland addresses Berlioz's decapitated head, and the head comes alive. Everything came to pass, did it not? Woland went on, looking into the head's eyes. The head was cut off by a woman. The meeting did not take place, and I am living in your apartment. That is a fact. And fact is the most stubborn thing in the world. But we are now interested in what follows, and not in this already accomplished fact. Notice what he emphasizes here. Fact is the most stubborn thing in the world. He's referring back again to the seventh proof, the fact that the devil is. Fact. The seventh proof is the fact of his existence. You cannot deny the fact of the devil's existence when you have been run over by a tram and decapitated in just the way that the devil predicted and apparently ordained for you. You have always been an ardent preacher of the theory that on the cutting off of his head, life ceases in a man. He turns to ashes and goes into non-being. I have the pleasure of informing you in the presence of my guests, though they serve as proof of quite a different theory, that your theory is both solid and clever. However, one theory is as good as another. There is also one which holds that it will be given to each according to his faith. Let it come true. You go into non-being, and from the cup into which you are to be transformed, I will joyfully drink to being. This is complicated and some heady philosophical stuff, but I do want to sort of take it apart here. He starts by condemning Berlioz's theory. You have been an ardent preacher of the fact that life ends at death. There is no afterlife. He even takes a certain amount of joy in this. Um, 
but Wolin tells him, I have the pleasure of informing you in the presence of my guests, though they serve as proof of quite a different theory, that your theory is both solid and clever. So notice Woland accepts his theory, despite the fact that it is obviously not 100% true. Like, look around, every one of the guests here, with the exception of Margarita, is a dead person. A dead person who has been renewed to life through some supernatural means, through their damnation, through the laws of the universe, perhaps. Whatever the rules here. It is obvious that Berlioz's theory that everyone who dies, dies and is done, and life ends at that moment of death, that's clearly not true for everyone. But the devil allows it to be true for Berlioz. He says that your theory is solid and clever. But he also emphasizes that each of these theories is as good as one another. There is also one which holds that it will be given to each according to his faith. And here it just gets even more complicated. On the one hand, the devil is saying, well, there's obviously a competing theory which is also true. Like, tons of people have not stopped living after their death. But he says that your theory is good, and I will let that theory endure in your case. He misquotes this line. Um... There is also one which holds that it will be given to each according to his faith. That's actually a line from Matthew. Matthew says it will be given to each according to his faith in the Sermon on the Mount. But what, Math, what Jesus is saying in Matthew is that every person will be rewarded according to their faith in God. And if they do not have faith in God, they will be, you know, punished according to their lack of faith. I.e., faith is a measurable entity, and everyone will receive benefits or receive judgment according to their faith. What the devil is saying instead is, whatever you believe will become true for you. Which, notice the complexity here. What Bulgakov seems to be suggesting, certainly within the sort of parameters that he's allowed to talk about, because you better believe the censors are looking at this passage real close, what he seems to be saying is what Berlioz has decided will be true for him. Berlioz says, you know, life ends at death, and the devil agrees. Okay, then your life will end at your death. But notice that the devil offers up the alternative. Your theory is solid, but it sucks. Like, why would you want to believe that? Because here are all these other people enjoying a perfectly good party, even though that they are damned. For the most part, everybody's enjoying themselves. Like, even Frieda gets the night off from the handkerchief. Go get drunk, forget your troubles, Margarita tells her. Like, there's happiness to be had, even in damnation, it seems. But Berlioz is cut off from that by his own choice, by his own decision, by his own lack of faith. So notice the line here that closes off this speech. Let it come true. You go into non-being. You stop existing as you predicted, as you insisted, and from the cup into which you are transformed, I will joyfully drink to being. I accept the other theory. I choose to live after my death, the devil says. And your decision, your atheism, your complete denial of the supernatural is a rather small-minded and sad little theory, as solid as it may be. Woland raised his sword, straight away the flesh of the head turned dark and shriveled, then fell off in pieces. The eyes disappeared, and soon Margarita saw on the platter a yellowish skull with emerald eyes, pearl teeth, and a golden foot. The lid opened on a hinge. Now they filled the cup. Like Berlioz's skull is now the cup from which Woland is going to drink. 
But what Wolin drinks, well, that requires the entrance of another character. Remember a moment ago when the doorbell rang? Well, in comes Baron Meigel. And we get some rather interesting description about Baron Meigel. Ah, my dearest Baron Meigel, Wolin smiling affably addressed the guest whose eyes were popping out in his, of his head. I'm happy to commend to you, Wolin turned to the other guests, the most esteemed Baron Meigel, an employee of the Spectacles Commission, in charge of acquainting foreigners with places of interest in the capital. Now, we've seen the Spectacles Commission before. That was where Vasily Stepanovich took the money in the hopes of being able to, like, get rid of it when all hell was breaking loose with Masselit and the Variety Theater. Um, notice that the Spectacles Commission, like the Acoustics Commission, is probably largely a front for, you know, the party to be able to conduct its affairs. And notice that Woland immediately exposes what Baron Meigel is doing. Like, he is in the Spectacles Commission, supposedly to acquaint foreigners with the places of interest in the capital. They are operating as basically trumped-up tour guides. But notice Margarita's response. Here Margarita froze because she recognized this Michael. She'd come across him several times in Moscow theaters and restaurants. Excuse me, thought Margarita, but that means, what, that he's also dead? But the matter straightaway clarified itself. The dear Baron, Woland went on, smiling joyfully, was so charming that, having learned of my arrival in Moscow, he rang me up at once, offering his services along the line of his expertise, that is, acquainting people with places of interest. It goes without saying that I was happy to invite him here. Just then Margarita saw Azzello hand the platter with the skull to Koroviev. Ah, yes, incidentally, Baron, Woland said, suddenly lowering his voice intimately, rumors have spread about your extreme curiosity. They say that, combined with your no less developed talkativeness, it was beginning to attract general attention. What's more, wicked tongues have already dropped the word a stool pigeon and a spy. And what's still more, it is hinted that this will bring you to a sorry end in no more than a month. And so, in order to deliver you from this painful anticipation, we have decided to come to your aid, taking advantage of the fact that you invited yourself here precisely with the purpose of eavesdropping and spying out whatever you can. Notice Baron Meigel's responsibilities. He is, on the one hand, ostensibly, to act as a tour guide. I'm going to show around foreign guests around Moscow. But his true responsibility is to spy on those foreigners for the secret police. To report the comings and goings of these foreigners. To deceive them, in short. And, apparently, he's about to die for it. Like, he's gone too far. He's been playing the game too long. Perhaps he knows too much. Notice his response. The Baron turned paler than Abaddon, who was exceptionally pale by nature, and then something strange took place. Abaddon stood in front of the Baron and took off his glasses for a second. At the same moment, something flashed fire in Azazello's hand. Something clapped softly. The Baron began to fall backwards. Crimson blood spurted from his chest and poured down his starched shirt and waistcoat. Grovia put the cup to the spurt and handed the full cup to Woland. They murder him. And again, this is justice. This is exposing. This is getting rid of someone who has been deceiving and profiting off of, you know, this lying and cheating and even, you know, damaging business. He is a spy, and he is punished here as a spy. Wolin punishes him for inserting himself into the devil's business, trying to spy on the devil and his activities. So they shoot him. Azazello shoots him. And Kroviev takes the cup made of Berlioz's skull, and catches the blood spurting from his chest, and Woland drinks from it. What's more, they give the, the cup to Margarita as well. Both drink. 
but notice Wolin changes. I drink your health, ladies and gentlemen, Wolin said quietly, and raising the cup, touched it to his lips. Then a metamorphosis occurred. The patched shirt and worn slippers disappeared. Wolin was in some kind of black calmness with a steel sword on his ship. He quickly approached Margarita, offered her the cup, and said imperiously, Drink! Margarita became dizzy. She swayed, but the cup was already at her lips, and voices she could not make out whose whispered in both her ears, Don't be afraid, queen. Don't be afraid, queen. The blood has long since gone into the earth, and where it was spilled, grapevines are already growing. Woland is transformed. And as much as we do not know why this whole ceremony, why he was in Moscow in the first place, as much as we have deduced that it's largely to understand the soul of the Moscow people, have they changed under the Soviet regime, as much as it has been to expose and bring justice to Moscow society, to punish those who have been lying and deceiving and taking advantage of people, and also to, like, reveal all of the deceptions and lies that have been taking place, we see here a third purpose. Through this ceremony, this ritual of the great ball at Satan's, Woland rejuvenates himself. He comes into the, the ball, you know, dressed in his bedroom slippers and his dirty tattered shirt, limping badly on his sword, and he emerges strong, powerful. A picture of what we usually imagine the devil to look like. Somehow this occult ritual has restored him to his strength. This is apparently something necessary. But notice, too, that Margarita also drinks from it. She, too, receives some kind of power, some kind of rejuvenation, more than Azazello's cream has already given her. We have yet to see exactly what that transformation will do to her. <laughs> 